Asian consumers are showing a very keen interest in sexual wellness products. And, you know, this includes everything from like contraceptives to sex toys. I think the statistics were last year, APEC accounted for about 39% of the global sexual wellness market. And in China alone, they spent about 23 billion US dollars. And 63% of that came from Gen Zs and millennials, mainly females. And I predict that we'll see more of discrete design of, you know, everyday objects that have a double use. For example, a vibrator that could also be used for facial massage or sexual wellness toy that can be used as a nightlight. So you can display it openly in your house. That's Debbie Young, Senior Strategist APAC for WGSN Insight, talking about the sexual revolution in Asia. Welcome back to Lives of Tomorrow. My name's Carla Bazashi, and I'm the CEO of WGSN, the world's leading trend forecasting company. On this podcast, we talk about how we will all live our lives in the future, covering a multitude of topics. And today, we're talking about the sexual revolution in the Asia-Pacific region and impact this will have on future generations. My colleague, Debbie Young, has worked on research looking into this region and found there to be a surging desire from consumers from the region to explore their sexuality, and we're going to find out why. Debbie's forecast finds the APAC region is having the biggest influence on global sexual awareness. By this, I mean the collective consciousness, knowledge and understanding of sexual health, rights, diversity and issues on a worldwide scale. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us. Please introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Debbie. I'm a senior strategist on our Insight team. That's the team that covers consumer behavior, uh, as well as retail and marketing trends. So can you think about maybe a pivotal moment or a person in your career that's had the most impact on you getting to where you are today? I think a pivotal moment was I decided to move to China in 2010. I was a journalist in Singapore then and I saw the rise of China and I wanted to be involved. So I decided to take a break from work, take a sabbatical and do my master's. It was a year in London and then the second year was in Shanghai. And that for me was really eye-opening. In fact, I actually felt more culture shock living in China than in London, even though I'm an, I am ethnically Chinese, I'm third generation Chinese. It was so fascinating. And it also, I think living in China also made me see different side of China. And it made me realize that global media, when they cover China, I think they tend to have a very binary view. It's very black or white. And typically China is portrayed as like the big bad guy, you know, the big polluter who doesn't play by global rules. But when I lived there, I saw there was so much complexity to the country, you know, between regions, between the rural and the urban divide, between national policies and how they're executed locally. And it made me think that being, and, and even for me as a third generation Chinese living in Singapore, I could sort of fit in because I speak Chinese, but also at the same time, I could sort of play the expat card. And it made me realize that Actually, I'm in this interesting position where I can shapeshift between identities. And it made me, I think that's where I found my raison d'etre. I wanted to tell the story of China and the story of modern Asia to the world because I'm a Western. I, I study in the US for my undergrad and the UK and then China. So I wanted to sort of be the bridge between East and West. And that's sort of what brought me to WGSN today. Amazing. Okay, now on this podcast, we've talked about the future of 
death. We've talked about the future of news. And this week, we're going to talk about the future of sex. So I expect most people listening to this won't realise that Asia is now the largest contributor to the global sexual wellness market. I didn't know that, but now I've done my research, I do. So you understand this region so well. Why do you think that this innovative, forward-looking mentality is coming out of Asia of all places? Yeah, I think you're very right. Asian consumers are showing a very keen interest in sexual wellness products. And, you know, this includes everything from like contraceptives to sex toys. I think the statistics were last year, APEC accounted for about 39% of the global sexual wellness market. And in China alone, the spend on adult toys, or, you know, in, in China, they call it little toys to be discreet, came up to about 23 billion US dollars. And 63% of that came from Gen Zs and millennials, mainly females. I think there's just so much hunger for conversation around sex and sexual exploration and sexual identity expression in Asia that hasn't come about before. And I think there are a couple of factors driving this. The first one definitely is technology. Asia has very high mobile broadband penetration rates, and that has provided users with not just the access, but also the privacy on a mobile phone to explore their sexuality online and the access to a lot of resources that they can find. Asian societies in general are also getting more liberal and open-minded. I think in the last few years, we've seen a few countries start to remove or relax their anti-LGBT laws. Some countries are permitting same-sex marriages or there are movements in a lot of countries to push for that. So in general, consumers are, are finding more safe spaces to embrace and express their sexual identity. And I think we are also seeing a general movement to desexualize the portrayal of the, the body. It's not just over-sexualized images anymore. Sexual health is increasingly being seen as necessary for overall health. So we're seeing more accurate, inclusive body portrayals with a lot of health advocacy messages behind them, such as early illness detection. Is this very much coming from the younger generation or are you seeing multiple different generations leaning into this new attitude? It's mainly driven by the younger generation for now, but I think increasingly we will see it across different generations as, for example, parents are looking for resources on how to talk to their children about sex. We are also seeing sexual wellness platforms for mature women who are undergoing menopausal symptoms and are looking for solutions and communities uh, for support. So I think it's starting from the Gen Zs and millennials, but you definitely see it across all demographics. Is it focused in any particular country? So you've mentioned China a few times there, but Asia is obviously a very complex, multicultural region. Is it particular countries that are ahead of others, but others are, are therefore kind of being taken along on the ride? Or is it across the entire region you're seeing this new attitude? Yeah, I think we're seeing this across the entire regions, but it's playing out very differently in, in different countries because they're also different culturally. And the movement is being led by more developed economies with, as well as China, which, you know, in some urban cities are also facing the same issues or, or challenges as a lot of developed countries are. We're seeing a lot of young Chinese women not wanting to conform to traditional expectations of what it means to be feminine and also obligations to get married and start a family 
There's a lot of pressures on the cost of living. It's They're already worried about whether they can afford a home to start a family, let alone, you know, how much it will cost to raise kids. And they're saying, we talk about the Tangping movement, which is the lying flat movement or quiet quitting globally. So they're saying, you know, I don't want to do any of this anymore. I don't want to succumb to the rat race to overwork and overachieve. I just want to enjoy myself. And with that also, because they are working and financially gaining more independence, they also then now have the resources to spend on on pleasures to embrace life and to prioritize themselves. You've talked about the fact that the kind of rise of social media or the smartphone penetration means there is a privacy for people to explore these new attitudes. But then there is all the sharing aspects. So it sounds like people are becoming more confident about talking about these things and maybe sharing that again whether that's online or with friends. Do you think that's why it's accelerating at the moment? Because it's moved from something that perhaps people were not willing to share, not willing to talk about. And the more people talk about it, then the more it becomes acceptable. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And we're seeing a lot of brands and also advising retailers to definitely embrace that as part of their sexual wellness marketing campaigns. People don't just want to be sold sex anymore. They want brands that align with their values. They want brands that contribute to a more inclusive future. So we've seen sexual wellness brands across the region, for example, speaking to marginalized communities like the Maori in New Zealand or platforms for the caste oppressed and the neurodiverse in in India. And when people find safe spaces in these niche communities, then they are better able and more confident to express themselves. And then this expression then gets taken on in the mainstream. And we have this sort of positive virtuous cycle where it gets more community and then the, the mainstream starts to accept it and is comfortable talking about it. In the forecast that you created for WGS and Insight on this topic, you did focus quite a lot in on the sexual revolution and the fact that Chinese women in particular buy more sex toys than ever, ever before. 23 billion, I think, is the number that you mentioned. And that was a few years ago. So no doubt that will have uh, accelerated as well. What do you think is driving that particular part of this sexual wellness revolution? Yeah, I think in general, people are getting more confident in their sexuality. And also, it's it's also supply meets demand. I think you're seeing a lot more brands come up in the space, which are then encouraging people who maybe hadn't thought about that to, to start exploring themselves. We see a, quite a few sexual wellness brands. I think the most well-known of them is Osuga in China, opening retail stores in mainstream malls. And it's no longer sort of garish, neon-lit stores. You know, they're in soothing pastel pink. They have fitting rooms where you can check out directly in the fitting room and get it delivered to you next the next day so you don't have to carry the bags around and the packaging is all very discreet. So I think when it's more visible, these brands become more visible, then women are also encouraged to explore their sexuality. Okay, we've got some recurring questions. So I'm going to jump to those and then we will come back to the topic in hand. When and how do you prioritize yourself? So on a day-to-day basis, I do a lot of yoga. I really like hot yoga. It's really good for detoxing. And I think I get some of my best ideas just sort of shutting off in a very hot room. And But yeah, when I find a bit more time, I, it's actually a bit strange, but I like to take courses. And I think the pandemic was really good for that. A lot of the learning went online. 
And during the pandemic, I took a course say, on starting a fashion business by Central St. Martins, which you know otherwise I would have to have traveled for. I did a course in tailoring when I was in Hong Kong. I also like like starting. It's actually really relaxing for me to think of like business ideas. I have a Google Drive full of like business plans and decks of like random little business ideas I've thought of. Usually they are to you know solve like a day-to-day -day pain point that I have. When I became a new mom, I wanted to redesign the diaper bag to make it look more chic. Or when I lived in Hong Kong, I didn't speak Cantonese when I first moved, and I really wanted to. I love the wet markets there, so I thought of, you know, designing an audiobook that you know you could learn the terms needed in the wet market, and it'd be great for newcomers, but also kids. And because I lived in Hong Kong, I was very near to the factories in Guangdong, so I actually prototyped some of these ideas. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. That's really cool. Okay, I want to see the Debbie Young diaper bag now. What will you eat if you're home alone and no one is watching? When I'm alone, I like to eat tuna pesto pasta. So sort of opening canned tuna and just popping a bit of pesto in it. There is nothing wrong with that. Okay, what is your bad habit? I'm always losing my phone. It's always lying somewhere around the house. I can never find it or deep in my handbag. And, you know, I think it's somewhere else. My husband absolutely hates it. He's now learned to buffer in about 10 minutes extra time before we leave the house for me to go on this search around the entire house for my phone. My kids are trained, you know, if they see my phone lying out around, they're now trained to bring it back to me and say, Mama, you forgot your phone. I think, you know, we think a lot about the, the future of consumer tech and when the day comes when we can embed our phone as a chip into our arms, I will probably be the best use case for it. You're going to be first in the line for that when that ability comes, yeah. When did you last learn something new that had an impact on the way you live your life? Yeah, so I feel like at WGSN, I'm always learning something new. The Singapore team of WGSN is quite young. We have a lot of Gen Zs and I love hanging out with Gen Zs. I, I'm a millennial. They make me feel a bit old sometimes, but I'm always learning something new from them. So a couple of weeks ago, we had our Singapore Trend Talk, which is a day where we showcase our forecast to our subscribers and potential subscribers. And after that, we all went for dinner and I was sitting with my colleague, Natasha from the research team. And she's really plugged into a lot of these online, you know, subcultures and youth cultures. And she mentioned this term called autismaxing or autism maxing, which made me a little bit curious. And so apparently it refers to people with autism who are flexing their autism as a point of pride. So if you look on TikTok, they are sharing videos of the, you know, physical ticks that are signals, typically signals of autism, and also showing moments of vulnerabilities like their anxiety attacks and how they cope with it. And I find that super interesting. I, I love the sort of empowering reablement messaging in that. And it also reminds me, so um, because I'm a mom, a lot of my algorithms on Instagram show me a lot of parenting content. And recently I started following a mom. She's called Wheelchair Rapunzel. So she has spinal muscular atrophy and she recently um, gave birth to a newborn and so she's showcasing her life you know wheeling her daughter around on her wheelchair and she's a little bit controversial um, she, she has a lot of fans and supporters but she also gets a lot of haters who are just judging the way she parents saying it's so unsafe for you to put a newborn on your lap like that and also I guess to tie into you know the, the topic that we're talking about today so sometimes she posts photos of herself in lingerie and you know that the haters say oh you shouldn't why 
are you doing that? Or your mom? Or why are you showcasing? Like, I don't want to see that. And I love that she fights back in the comments. And her whole point was that disabled bodies can be sexually attractive as well. And, and disabled people can sexually express themselves as well. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I really love that. And I just love this movement, I think, of people finding the communities online and being able to express themselves. And even if it's not conforming to traditional expectations of what sexuality looks like, what parenting looks like, what disabilities look like. And I think people should just be kinder when we come across. That's a lovely answer to this question. And last of our recurring questions, again, we're going from serious to non-serious. What was the last series you binge watched? I've just watched the recent season of Black Mirror. I loved it when it first came out and I was so eagerly waiting for the last four years for the season six and I, I love some of the episodes, but, you know, to be honest, I, I liked some of the earlier seasons also. I mean, I love the series in general. Okay, amazing. All right, so we're going to get back to the topic in hand and think more about what the future looks like for sexual awareness, sexual wellness all across the globe. In your forecasts, you state that younger consumers are more willing than ever to explore personal gratification and engage in open discussions about sex and sexuality. What's been the main driver for that change? I think the main driver for that is their need for more accurate information. Today, it's not hard to find information, but I think they want reliable information that they can trust and they want it conveyed to them in a way that isn't sort of preaching or top down. Um, they want it to be relatable through a friend, um, through a peer, but also information that they can believe in that's scientifically accurate. So you write that Gen Z in APAC in particular are going through a sex recession linked to the pandemic and intergenerational living. Can you talk about that trend in particular, but how you think it will change and evolve in the future? So I think APAC Gen Z have been exposed from a young age to a lot of online sexual imagery because of the ease of access to the internet. And they're now desensitized to it. Also, a lot of them are rejecting sex because they were under a lot of stress during the pandemic. And I think a particularly Asian phenomenon is the expectation for intergenerational living. So a lot of young adults in Asia live with their parents until marriage. And I think there was a recent survey where 84% of Hong Kong residents said that living with their parents in tiny living quarters, as, as it is in Hong Kong, is directly impacting their sex lives. So what we're seeing is more conversations and brands are starting to appeal to these consumers. In order to connect with them, you need to offer emotional connection in private spaces, even if it's in a larger shared environment, rather than just the sexual nature of relationships. And also to reach out to them using technology to sort of personalize the outreach so they feel like they themselves as an individual is being talked to. And we're also seeing, and I predict that we'll see more of discrete design of, you know, everyday objects that have a double use as, you know, a sexual wellness object. For example, a vibrator that could also be used for facial massage or, you know, there's this Chinese brand Osuga that has a sexual wellness toy that can be used as a nightlight so you oh, can wow. display it openly <laughs> in your house um, with no stigma. Yeah, and in my research, I also found some really interesting examples. So in Australia, there's a condom brand called Four Seasons and they've come up with this intervention, generation intervention packs that encourage parents to have this conversation about sex with their kids. With So the pack comes with prompts 
encourage discussion. I think Durex also does that quite a fair bit in Asia. They have, you know, games, intimacy games, because people don't just want to engage in the acts of sex. They, what they're really seeking is that connection with other people. Talk to me a little bit more about the future state on this. So this seems like a very healthy thing that in this particular region, people want that discourse. A younger generation is driving more transparency, a less conservative approach to this. Retailers are reacting in a positive way. Do you think that this speaks to a more positive future or do you think that there will be a kind of more conservative youth term? Because we're definitely seeing in other parts of the world and I, you know, I point to the states on this quite often, but a much more conservative attitude towards these things. Look at, you know, how difficult it is for Planned Parenthood to exist in certain states in the US at the moment. So do you think this is here to stay in Asia? Yes, I think it's here to stay. I think a part of the openness is also driven in APAC. The governments and the authorities have great influence on things. And I think in APAC, part of the openness will also be driven by the sort of authorities' attitude towards sex. And you definitely see an opening up, not just in the attitudes towards sexual expression, but also in general towards sexual health. Um, I think because a lot of APAC is aging, so you definitely see a lot of governments promoting fertility treatments, for example, through subsidies. And as part of that, the perception of sex as a vice has now moved to sex as, as a matter of public health. And governments are putting up a lot of funding and private investors for sexual wellness innovations. And that in in the mix, you know, will help to spur a lot of more talk about sexuality. And I think the good that will come out of this is a lot more talk about reproductive health. We'll see a lot more sexual wellness brands move from just ple- talking about pleasure to, you know, sex tech for health. We're seeing a few early early innovations in sexual diagnostics, you know, where they use period health to as markers of other ailments that can be detected early through that. And when we normalize conversations around the body and around the period, which is, you know, has been so taboo and genitalia, then we will have a more positive outcome. So I love this idea of sex tech and how that can drive a really positive health revolution. Now, you've hinted at some brands that are already kind of leaning in. Is there any particular innovation that you think our listeners might not have heard of up until this point that might fascinate them? Yeah, so in my research, I came across some interesting examples. There was, well, this is not really the tech in the the sex toy itself, but in Pakistan, there is a beauty app where you could get beauty services in your home. What they're doing is they're training some of these um, waxing therapists to, after the session, teach the women how to do breast examinations to detect breast cancer. And, you know, in a, in a society where it's so taboo and the women maybe can't go out to seek these resources, they are coming to them under the guise of, you know, a beauty treatment. And I really love that. We were also seeing, for example, in Thailand, there's a lingerie brand that for World Breast Cancer Day, you know, they gave out these extra padding and you could put it into your bra. And then when you press on it, it sort of simulates what breast cancer lumps would feel like. So you can learn through that way. Also very discreet. And I think we are seeing in Thailand, another brand was doing menstruation pads that can detect HPV. So again, it takes away the stigma of going to a doctor. It is at-home convenience and it offers the at-home convenience as well as the privacy of an intimate space. 
that you can do at home. Those are all amazing. That's so fascinating, which leads me very nicely into my next question, which is what can the rest of the world learn from not just the attitudes, but also the innovation coming out of Asia? You've just mentioned and given three brilliant case studies, but I guess from a more macro level, what can the rest of the world learn? I think there should be a global movement towards desexualizing the body. I think that's a very positive development that we saw in APEC. And I think in the rest of the world, there's always been talk about sex and portrayals of the body in a sexualized way is now commonplace and accepted. Maybe it's good to have a reset and rethink that you know, it's not something you take for granted. Maybe we need to rethink the way we look at the human body in a way that could help reframe conversations around you know, sexual health and take away that lens that the body always needs to be over-sexualized. You've talked so eloquently, and I, I do find it so fascinating how in Asia you've got this change, because I do think a lot of the world probably has a perception that Asia is more conservative. And what you've outlined here in the forecast is that just isn't the case at the moment. In fact, you've got a generation who are much more advanced in their thinking than lots of other parts of the world, which might be regressing on that front. And then you've got brands and businesses and I guess, you know, health organisations who are being hugely innovative in this area. So the topic as a whole is just really interesting and, and kind of where you personally land in this is also quite fascinating. But I do think what the body means and and how we express ourselves using our body is really interesting. Yeah, and I think it's great to have these debates, to have different viewpoints. I think one development of the internet is that, you know, at Insight, we write a lot about the decentralization of social media, and that is going to lead to different people finding different communities. So the women who, you know, want to show off their bodies in their 50s will find that community. But I think the challenge or the, the danger of that is that we all end up in these echo chambers where we think one way or the other way is 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 the only way. And I think it's great when different communities then can look at other and, and stir up debate. You know, if someone says that's not acceptable for someone to counter that and say, why isn't that acceptable? And then we have this a healthy discourse. You know, as you say, it's been going on for centuries and I think it needs to continue. What some groups can accept, why some other groups can't accept it? Just to challenge people's perceptions. I, I think it's, it's great to sort of land in the gray area where it's accepted, but also some communities are not accepting it. Yeah. And look, this constantly evolves, doesn't it? It doesn't stand still. And different parts of the world, different countries, different continents, different regions, different religions are going to explore this and evolve at different paces and explore it in different ways. I think the examples you've given of how that's changing are really fascinating. And I think there's kind of a lot of food for thought there, a lot that can be learned and a lot that's so positive as well. And that's always a good thing. Which is a nice segue to my final question, which is, are you more hopeful or anxious about the future of sexual wellness in Asia and actually the world in general? Yeah, I'm definitely hopeful as a mom to young kids who's going to need to have this talk one day with my kids. It definitely makes me think what kind of environment my kids will grow up in. And I hope we can get to a stage where no one will feel ashamed, you know, of discussing sex as a topic, whether it's their sexual reproductive health, their sexual identity, and that I hope young people or even older people are able to undergo like a sexual coming of age or sexual exploration in safe spaces where they can find communities where they won't 
be judged, you know, whatever your race or religion or sexual orientation and preferences are. Perfect. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you for joining this podcast. That's it for today. Uh, thank you again to my guest, Debbie Young, Senior Strategist APAC for WGSN Insight. I do hope in this episode you learned something new and formed a view on today's topic. Next week, WGSN's Create Tomorrow podcast is back with another episode looking at the future of product design. I'm Kala Bazashi, CEO of WGSN. I'll see you next time. <laughs>